right. We're going to be in Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So third book of the Bible, uh, studying this morning. Uh, again, it's good to be with you. I'm, I'm excited about our study in Leviticus. Uh, most people might not be. Uh, but I think, I think you'll find it's a very good book, a very, a very interesting and fun book to study together. Uh, we've been studying on Sunday nights through entire books of the Bible uh, and trying to get a good summary of those books to get the whole book in our mind. Uh, and that's, that's been really, very helpful for me to get this whole book in my mind, uh, and, and I hope it's been helpful for you. But as I studied Leviticus, I really felt like this needed to be a Sunday morning lesson. Uh, because of the information that it provides for a Christian to understand uh, how valuable the Old Testament is to understanding the New Testament. Uh, I've just recently, I'd say in the last few years, come to appreciate the Old Testament and its value uh, through my study of it. And, and I think as we study Genesis and Exodus, you've probably seen some of that coming out in our studies. But uh, as we get to Leviticus, it becomes very apparent we need to know more about the Old Testament to make really good sense of the New Testament. Uh, so if, if you've not done much study in the Old Testament, I hope that this prepares you for that. Uh, if you've, you've gone through the reading plan, Genesis, cool, Exodus, yeah, that's pretty good. Leviticus, uh, I don't know that I want to read this anymore, right? Um, hopefully, our study this morning will change that and help you to see that this is a really, really cool book. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so because I'm on Sunday morning, not Sunday night, you might not have been through Genesis and Exodus. A very brief synopsis of those two books is essentially 2,000 plus years worth of history of mankind. Uh, starting at the very beginning with Adam and Eve and the creation of the world, God created man and woman in his image and then and put them in the garden and blessed them and had a relationship with them and then they sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. And whenever we get to chapter 6, the, the multiplication has happened and the, the, the man and the woman have become a huge multitude of people, but they're all horrible uh, and sinning against God all the time except for Noah and his family. So he destroys all of mankind except for Noah and his family. And, and he dis determines to bless mankind and somehow restore the relationship that was once. You kind of see a hint of that as you go forward and you get to chapter 12. You start to see he selects a man named Abraham, promises him blessing, and we follow the lineage of Abraham and we see God is working. God is doing something. And we're just not really sure what it is or how it is, but he's got this plan in store for the nation uh, that would come from Abraham, which is known as Israel. Well, whenever we go to Exodus, we see uh, that the nation of Israel uh, has become a nation. It went from 70 people to over a million people in Egypt. They've, they've had to flee to Egypt to survive, and they have become enslaved. And now God has heard the cry. He's determined, I will now save my people out of Egypt. And he does that through 10 plagues and bringing them through the Red Sea. Uh, on dry ground. So he saves his people, uh, brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where they're going to worship God. Uh, and whenever he brings them there, he has Moses give them instructions in the latter part of Exodus about uh, the law and the commands of God and about the tabernacle that they are to build. A uh, tabernacle is basically uh, walls made of animal skin with 
uh, inner room uh, and then an even further inner room where, where essentially God's going to dwell and God's going to be with his people in this tabernacle and they're going to be able to worship him. The very end of Exodus helps us to set up Leviticus. In chapter 40 of Exodus, we see Moses does everything according to the command of God in building the tabernacle. He follows every, uh, every single part of the construction to a T. And verse 34 tells us the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is what we're left with in Exodus, that God's people have now become this huge nation. They have now been saved from slavery. They have come to the, the mountain of God and, has, and erected a tabernacle where God's glory comes and he dwells with his people. And so now we get to Leviticus. Well, what is Leviticus? Well, a lot of times we hear uh, Leviticus is the book of the Levites, Okay? Um, it's a book for the Levites so that they know what to do to worship God. That's why it says Leviticus, right? Levi, you see that right in there. But that, that's not really what this book is. Okay? Don't think about this book that way. Uh, this is actually a book intended for all Israel to understand how they can worship God acceptably at the tabernacle. This is an instruction book. Uh, a lot of times we think uh, we're going to open the Bible and find a manual about everything we need to do. And we're like, no, that's not really what the book is. There's narrative, there's instruction, there's, there's poetry, there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible. It's not a manual. Well, Leviticus kind of is. Uh, there's very little narrative in the book of Leviticus. It is actually more so a manual, which is why we start to read it and think, oh, well, this probably isn't that fun to read. Um, this is like one of the only books that reads like this, though. Uh, and it, it's, it's essentially just picking up where Exodus left off. Because the glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle. God now has a relationship with the people. The people have a relationship with God. Uh, Moses has done everything God has commanded. Uh, and everything seems to be going well. But as we start to think about this, like, okay, there's a tabernacle here. It's all constructed. God's there. But what's all this about? What's going to happen now? Why did we construct this? Why is this even here? We need more explanation. And if you remember in Exodus, the people have been stubborn and rebellious. They built a golden calf. They've complained to Moses. So how is, uh, how is a sinful people going to live with God in their midst? And how are they going to be able to draw near to a holy God to worship him when they commit sin and they do things that are wrong whenever they break the covenant uh, in some way? These are the questions Leviticus helps us understand. How is it that, that a sinful people can worship God? You ever wondered that? Uh, you ever thought about your own sinfulness and thought, I'm not worthy to approach the throne of God, that, this is, that I can't draw near to God? Well, I imagine the people probably had some similar feelings after the, the, the voice of God came from Mount Sinai and, and terrified them. Now, here's the glory of God in the midst of the camp of Israel filling the tabernacle, and now they're supposed to worship God? How are they going to do that? Well, that's what this book is trying to help us understand, how they are able to worship God. And then we'll see, after we go through this, what we learn about our worship to God. Okay? I want to start by giving you a really high-level uh, outline of the whole book, because it is a manual, 
And I, I don't think it's boring, but some of you might. And if you fall asleep, at least you get the high-level outline before, you know, you fall asleep and then wake up for the application and be like, hey, this is wonderful. Um, but, but here's the big picture outline of the book. There's four main sections in Leviticus. First of all, uh, he gives instructions for congregational worship. We see in the first seven chapters five different sacrifices that are, that are given by God for the people to, to offer to God. And then chapters 8 through 10, God consecrates the priests and they begin their work of, of service to the Lord. The second section is instructions for holy living. So here's how you worship uh, God in the assembly and then here's how you live a holy life that worships the Lord. And he talks about all kinds of impurities of life. He talks about uh, how that relationship is going to work with an atonement, atoning sacrifice uh, that is for the holy place in chapter 16 and then he talks about uh, keeping away from certain sins and things like that so a lot of description of holy living uh, living in such a way that God is able to uh, find you pleasing as you come to worship him and and as you want to be his people the the third section is a group of feasts and uh, Sabbath years and things like that where the people are commanded to remember uh, God's goodness to them what God has done for them that there are also other events besides the sacrifices that 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 God wants them to remember and to do and then chapter 26 uh, gives the blessings and the curses which we see in Deuteronomy later we see a small snippet of that as part of the covenant there will be blessings and curses and then he at the very end he talks about vows so that's the whole book in you know two or three minutes uh, but what else is here uh, in this book well let's start diving into some of the details in chapter one we get a very small introduction and then we get sacrifices uh, he dives right into the sacrifices that Israel is supposed to keep and to do throughout <clears throat> their generations going forward there are five sacrifices and I'm going to go through them very briefly and I want you to be listening to these things and 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 paying attention to them because they'll be significant at the end first of all you have the burnt offering okay this is the first sacrifice that's mentioned uh, and this is a, a, a sacrifice that would include uh, different animals for different people. It ranges from a bull to a pigeon, uh, depending on your wealth, how much money you have. And this is a, a sacrifice where you, the, the, the Israelite would put their hand on the animal and kill the, kill the animal. Sorry, my throat's messing up from the fruit of the vine kill the animal, uh, and then the priest would take the animal, put the blood on the altar, and lay the animal on the altar, and it would burn up. That's why it's called the burnt offering. They would not take any of the meat off of the animal at all. It would just be completely burnt up to the Lord. And they were commanded in this to take their very best animal, the, the best bull, the best sheep, the best goat, a, a spotless animal, one that is in, in tremendous shape, and bring it before the Lord and offer it, and it would be completely burned up. The second offering is called the grain offering. In this offering, they take some of their harvest and they create bread. Uh, in an oven. They, they season it, they put oil, they put salt on it, and then they give it to the priest, 
And the, the bread is split between the priest and God. And they would take part of the bread and they would throw it on top of the burnt offering and it would burn up. And the priest would have the rest for themselves. This would be a way of sustaining the priest. The grain offering was a thanksgiving offering. A recognition that the blessings we have come from God. And so they give back to God part of their produce uh, as they live in the land. And that's in chapter 2, the grain offering. And then we have the peace offering. Okay? The peace offering is, again, an animal that's spotless. But this is an offering that will be given to the, that will be killed and then spread out between God, the priest, and the Israelite. It's shared among them all. And God gets the fat, which is the best part to, in Israelites in those days. We don't really like the fat, but that's the best part to them. God gets that. The priests get the best slices of meat, and the people get everything else. And then they have a great feast. They enjoy that. And, and they, they put the fat on top of the burnt offering, uh, indicating you do the burnt offering before the peace offering, right? So if you're just going to approach God, you have to do a burnt offering. If you want to do a peace offering, then you do the burnt offering, and then you do this uh, split up between the three groups. And this peace offering represents a kind of fellowship. This is like a, a, a meal, having a meal with God, essentially, uh, in this peace offering. Very interesting offering. Um, then you have the sin offering. The sin offering goes from chapter 4 all the way into chapter 5. And this, of course, is for the unintentional sins of the people. The people uh, would go astray. They would forget the commands of God, or they would fall due to weaknesses, or, or something like that. And so all the different uh, sins that people can come up with could be atoned for in providing a sin offering. This would provide the forgiveness of that sin, whatever the sin is. Uh, this is not a high-handed rebellious sin, but this is a sin of uh, weakness or a sin of going astray from the commands and the laws of the Lord. And, and there's a distinction between those two things. But there's many facets to this. There's the congregation sins, a bull has to be offered. The, a priest sins, a bull has to be offered. Uh, one of the people sins or a leader sins, then a sheep or a goat is offered for the forgiveness of their sins. And God says over and over again, uh, he shall be forgiven when he offers this sacrifice to make atonement for himself. Making atonement is seen throughout every one of these sacrifices. Interesting. Uh, even the peace offering, even the, uh, the uh, other grain offering. There's some level of atonement or memorial or something like that that's going on. Uh, whenever you get to the last uh, offering, the guilt offering, we see some similarities with the sin offering. When you think sin offering, guilt offering, what's the difference? A guilt offering is for restitution. There are some sins that we might commit that is against our brother that we can't just offer a sin offering to the Lord and say, huh, I, I'm good with the Lord because I've been forgiven because I offered a sin offering. Sorry, you're out of luck. God expected people to pay back the ones they'd wronged before they ever come to offer their guilt offering. And so there was an expectation that they would restore what they had taken wrongfully or what they had accidentally, even if it was an accident, uh, taken from their brother, plus 20% of what was taken. Imagine that. 
Uh, and then they were to go and offer a ram to the Lord in order to be restored in a relationship to him. So this is, a, this is the guilt offering that's laid out in 5.14 through 6.7. So you see how the guilt offering, wow, that's a pretty expensive offering, isn't it? Uh, that you would have to restore all of these things um, and in addition to a ram. So, so this is the five different offerings that were commanded by God that the people would have to continually be giving every, every day, every time they sinned, uh, every time they wanted to worship or approach the throne of God, that these are the things that they would have to do over and over again in order for a sinful people to have a relationship with God. Uh, the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7 is really trying to give instructions to the priests. The priests are not Levites. The priests are the, the sons of Aaron. Aaron and all his sons will be priests. Uh, and Levites are, uh, Aaron and his sons are Levites, but all Levites aren't priests. Uh, their Levites were in, eventually given the charge of protecting the items of the tabernacle and things like that. Uh, so the priests were given instructions about how they were to go through uh, all of these offerings in chapter 6 and chapter 7. All right. The next section is chapters 8 through 10, where we see Moses consecrate the priests. Uh, he, he sets them up exactly as it was described in Exodus, giving them the clothes and uh, helping them uh, to, to make all the offerings in the right way. And, and he's right there with them doing everything as the Lord commanded Moses. We see that repeated over and over again in this text. They're doing it by the book. They're obeying God's commands perfectly. And, and Aaron and his sons are set up to be priests forever as a result of God desiring to, to make Aaron and his sons priests. And so long as they followed all the commands, everything was good. In chapter 9, we see that all Israel then gets assembled, and they're going to make an offering to the Lord and go through this whole process, and they do everything as the Lord commanded Moses. And whenever we get to the end of the chapter, verse 22, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from the offering, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the piece, pieces of fat on the altar. And, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So here you have a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering given. And, and Aaron and Moses come out and they bless the people. And God lets his glory be seen to the people. And he sends out fire to consume the offering. And all the people yell and they fall on their faces because they're terrified. Uh, and and they're, they're humbling themselves before God. So this seems like a great event, right? I mean, this is the narrative of Leviticus, so enjoy this. This is it. Um, this is a great event, right? That, that God has now shown himself, that he is now allowing the people to worship him in this way. Everything seems to be going great. Well, look at chapter 10, what happens very next thing. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held 
his peace. The sons of Aaron, Aaron has four sons. Two of the sons of Aaron decide in all this excitement to take their censer to get some fire and to burn incense on it that God did not command. And God sends fire to, to burn them up, to destroy them. How could this happen, right? I mean, this is the first event. We don't want to see this kind of thing happen, right? <clears throat> this is how a sinful people are supposed to draw near to God. And everything's supposed to be okay. For them to have a relationship with God, everything's supposed to work out. Well, notice what they did wrong. They worshipped God their own way. They did something that God didn't command them to do, thinking, oh, this is, a, this is great, this is wonderful, how exciting. And they're so spiritual and they're so involved in everything that's going on. And they just want to offer them their something to God, their way. But God was not pleased with their unauthorized fire, their strange fire that they offered up to him. And notice what he says. Uh, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be set apart. I will be uh, not like the gods of the nations that you worship however you want to worship. I will be different. And before all the people, I will be glorified. How do we glorify God? Well, we do exactly what he commanded us to do. That is, that is how we glorify him. That is how we exalt him and not exalting ourselves and our ways and our, our, our ideas about how we can do things. So here we see uh, at this critical moment, man fails again. Man fails again. Well, the worship service goes on, and Aaron's somehow uh, able to keep it together mostly. He makes another mistake, but he, God's compassionate toward him in making that mistake. Uh, but they, they conclude the worship service in chapter 10, and that's the end of this section. Then we get to the section on holiness. Okay, So that was all instructions for congregational worship and kind of the example. Now we have a section on holiness in chapters 11 through 22 where he describes to us a number of things that are common on the earth that God has determined they are un unclean. You have things that are holy, things that are clean, and things that are unclean. Those are the three different types of things in God's eyes uh, that exist on the earth. The things that are holy, he makes holy. The things that are clean, uh, he just considers clean. And the things that are unclean, he considers unclean. Uh, and, and as we go through this section, you, you get the picture of all these different kinds of animals and insects, uh, diseases, childbirth makes you unclean. There's a number of things that we would just run into in our normal course of life that make us unclean. They're not necessarily sinful, but they make the people unclean and unfit to worship God in that state. Uh, and, and we see, as we look at this, that God is desiring for his people to be holy. And we're just kind of like, well, what's holiness? What is that? And how does, how does one become holy? And that's probably your question as you're studying through Leviticus. What is holiness? How do I become holy? And we're going to study that a little bit more tonight. But look at a couple of passages. Leviticus 19.1. Uh, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Notice, you must be holy. You must uh, be holy because I am holy. You must be different. You must be set apart. You must be separate. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You see a connection between holiness and obedience to the commandments, but you also see that God is sanctifying the people. God is the one who makes them holy, and God wants them to be holy. And as we're studying that, maybe we're thinking, why? Why Why does God want the people to be holy? He's holy. Isn't that enough? Well, he has separated his people. Uh, Look at chapter 20, verse 25. He says, You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Ah, okay. So all of this talk about clean and unclean and holy and unholy is really God saying, I want you to be obedient to whatever I say. And I want to make you holy. I want to make you separate. I want to make you distinct. I want you to be with me. And in order to be with me, you have to be holy. You can't be like the world around you. You have to become something different. And all these commands are making the people very different from the world around them, making them holy. Uh, In chapter 16, which we skip, uh, you see that God's own tabernacle, the holiest of holy places, needed atonement because of the uncleanness of the world in which it lived. The high priest would have to go in once a year to offer a sacrifice uh, for the, the sanctuary, for the temple, for uh, all the instruments, for all the surrounding area, he would have to go in and offer an atoning sacrifice just in order for God to continually be dwelling with his people in the most holy place. So there's a description here of holiness to help us understand God is holy and he wants a holy people who are different from everybody else. They're not... Uh, touching certain animals. They're not touching dead bodies. They're not doing uh, things as much as they can to make themselves unclean. In chapter 17 through 20, he actually describes sins that would make them unclean and unholy. Sexual immorality of many different kinds is mentioned there as being an abomination and something that makes you unholy, unclean, unable to worship God uh, and, and be holy. Uh, and also child sacrifices, and there's a couple others in there as well. Uh, And then the very end, chapter 21 and 22 of this section, he describes how the priests are are set apart specifically. They're given additional rules to be holy before the Lord. Uh, They are the holiest of all the Israelites, as they are uh, constantly near God's throne and worshiping God. Okay, I spent a lot of time on the first 22 chapters The last uh, few chapters we're going to kind of breeze through, but I really wanted you to get all of that in the first 22 chapters because understanding the worship and understanding holiness, I think, is something we kind of disregard 
uh, and we don't pay enough attention to in, in our study of the New Testament. They don't make sense to us. And so hopefully Leviticus 1 through 22, if you study that and learn about it a little bit more, hopefully that will help you uh, as, as it's helped me. Now, in chapter 23, we transition into the different feasts. Uh, he mentions a number of feasts. And so basically, you're now my people. <clears throat> I am your God. You are holy before me. You can worship me. And I'm going to celebrate, essentially. And you're going to celebrate with me. And you're going to remember all the good things that I've done to you. So there's a number of feasts that are mentioned in chapter 23. Uh, and, and trying to help the people understand all the blessings that God has given them throughout the years. They, they worship with the Passover. They worship with the harvest. They worship the Feast of Booths, where they all gather in tents and remember their time wandering in the wilderness as well. Uh, chapter 24 is an odd chapter where you get them being told, you will keep a lamp burning in the holy place. The priest has to keep a lamp burning at all times, and the people have to provide the oil for that lamp, so it's burning at all times. And then there is bread that goes into the holy place, not the most holy place, the holy place, where the priest would go in and keep the bread replenished at all, at all times. So you have light, you have bread that's mentioned, and it's constantly being restored and, and re, uh, uh, being given by the people. Then you have a punishment in verses 10 for blasphemy. And then verse 17 and following punishment for murder. So it's just kind of a weird chapter. And you're just kind of wondering, what's all this about? Well, first of all, the bread, God is the light of Israel. And God is the bread of Israel, right? He's the one who gives them the light. He's the one who gives them the bread. And then blasphemy is a sin against God. And murder is a sin against man. He's talked about love your neighbor as yourself earlier and part of the holiness and cleanness laws. And now he makes this statement, uh, if you blaspheme against me who gives you everything, you're worthy of death. If you go against me and you start, uh, you start uh, cursing me, acting as though I'm not a good God, then you're worthy of death. And if you murder someone, you're worthy of death because he's made in my image and I, love, I want you to love your neighbor. So a command that, that kind of lines up with the, the New Testament commands as well. Then you have in chapter 25, the Sabbath year. Uh, I put Sabbath on the first one. It's not in 23, it's in 25. The Sabbath year where they would stop planting and tilling and all that and just let the land rest on the seventh year and just let whatever grows be the harvest. Uh, and it's interesting, God provides for the land a time of rest like he provides for his people. And then uh, we have Jubilee, which is a time when all the, those who have enslaved themselves are set free on the 49th year. Uh, and, and there's redemption of property and, and talking about loving your neighbor a good bit there in chapter 25. And all of these are statutes that he wants to perpetuate through all the generations that they would keep all these rules keep all these feasts over and over and over again chapter 26 has blessings and curses uh, which we'll talk more in detail about sometime uh, but the blessing is you'll be my people i will provide for you the curses are if you refuse to obey me then i'm going to punish you to try to bring you back to me and then uh, he talks about different vows that must be kept okay all right, that's the book of Leviticus uh, as a whole. Let's talk about why this is all important in our grand scheme of things very quickly, all right? Um, 
you remember back in Genesis 3, man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden and had no relationship with God anymore. There's a big problem there. Uh, and now we're, we're wanting that to be fixed. Well, this is the answer that God starts to give them. This is a possible solution to the Genesis 3 problem. You can't have a relationship with me because you sin and you're not holy like I am holy. Now God makes a way for them to become holy uh, through this tabernacle and through this relationship. And so as we see in the blessings that were promised in chapter 26, if you're still there, uh, verse 11, he says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. A very similar picture to Genesis is given to uh, the Israelites in Leviticus. He's going to bless them. If they obey his commandments, he's going to be with them and walk with them just like it was in the garden. And if they refuse, uh, he also creates a contingency plan. He knows they're going to be stubborn. He says, if you refuse to obey me, I'm going to punish you to try to bring you back to me. And if you still refuse, I'm going to punish you and bring you back to me. And if you still refuse, I'm going to punish you and bring you back to me. And the curses, this is how it sounds over and over again. You're going to continually refuse. And I'm going to continually bring you back. But eventually there's going to come a point when you're going to refuse and not come back. And whenever that happens, when you become that rebellious, I'm going to kick you out of the land. He tells them right here in Leviticus, I'm going to kick you out of the land. But I will remember the covenant that I've made with you, uh, that I made with you at Horeb, that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and this is all pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of Leviticus and the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant that God always had in mind since before the foundation of the world to bring Jesus in as our sacrifice. Jesus is the burn offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, uh, and he's the one who, who God provided for us to make atonement for our sins. To make it to where we can draw near and approach the throne of God. Jesus fulfills all of these things that have been mentioned throughout this book. And it's just amazing as you go into Hebrews chapter 10, you see that very thing described to us. In Hebrews 10, I'll read it quickly, verses uh, 10 through 14. If I can find it. Hebrews 10, oh wait, where am I? Is that 10 through 14? I'm in the wrong book. Tried to be fast. He says, And by that will, that is the will of God that Jesus came to do, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here you see a picture that Jesus has been provided as the single sacrifice that covers the sins of all time. All those who are making sacrifices with blood, uh, with bulls and goats and sheep, that was never really able to take away their sins. So God said he forgave them. God was looking forward to the time when Jesus would provide the ultimate sacrifice for those who put their faith and trust in him 
and remove all of their sins so that they can now dwell with God. Look at verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. You get a picture of having the ability to draw near to God because Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, has made us holy, has purified us, has provided for the forgiveness of our sins and made it so that we can see God and be with him. And this is essentially what Leviticus was preparing us for so that we would understand what Jesus came to do. We are sinful, unholy people who do not deserve to enter the presence of God. But Jesus makes it possible for all of us to draw near through his sacrifice. So as we look at the book of Leviticus, we see an explanation of how a sinful people can have fellowship with God. We see that God wants to have fellowship with a sinful people through sacrifice. And that God has given us what we need to approach him. Whenever we approach the throne of God, we're not bringing our bulls. We're not bringing our goats. We're not bringing our animals to, to slaughter, to cover our sins, or to, to, to try to be pleasing to God. God provided what we needed in the life of Jesus and in his death. He provided all that we needed so that we can now approach the throne of God. So what do we learn from this? Well, we need to be sure that we learn from Nadab and Abihu that glorifying God means we approach God's throne in holiness and we sanctify him, we glorify him. We're not seeking our own glory or doing things our own way. And we see we must walk in God's statutes. We must obey his commands and do them all the days of our lives and have that relationship with God because of what he has done for us. Because he has made a way for us to draw near, for us to experience the relationship that we really want. And he promises us the land uh, that is the Garden of Eden when this life is over, that he will dwell among us and that we will see him, we will be with him, and we will enjoy the blessings of that relationship more fully. But you can enjoy those blessings right now. You can enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. You can enjoy being made holy uh, and, and being righteous before God, though you don't deserve it, uh, though I don't deserve it. We can experience a relationship with God through that sacrifice. We can draw near to him. If anybody here this morning has not obeyed the gospel and received the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus' sacrifice, I hope you understand in this sermon how wonderful that blessing is and how much you need that sacrifice in order to approach God's throne. We can't just approach it based on our own righteousness. Uh, we are unclean, unholy, and unfit to approach the throne of God without sacrifice. But Jesus has provided that for us. God has provided that for us through Jesus. Uh, so let's take advantage of that. If anybody needs to uh, come to God and submit your life to him, we want to encourage you and help you in that in any way we can. 
Uh, and, and if you're online and you need help in any way, please reach out and contact us.